It's a delight to be with you. So grateful to be here several years in the making to be able to join you here at the Claris Conference. And thank you to Ryan for the overly kind introduction. He has been a, a good friend. He was very helpful to me as he was finishing his PhD process and I was just starting to ask him lots of questions and help point me in a good direction and have enjoyed serving with him on the board for the Gospel Coalition. And you'll have to ask us sometime, but we'll always remember the two of us watching a hockey game with John Piper at Southern Seminary. Ask us sometime, it was an experience. <laughs> and I'm so looking forward to hearing HB. I would come here to be with Ryan and to hear HB. It's good, I mean, I'm gonna get to hear some good preaching for a change. So it's great to be with you. Uh, I haven't preached through the book of Revelation for over a decade. So when Ryan mentioned, how about you and HB go through the seven letters, I was very eager to do so and went through my notes and was at least pleased to realize that I do believe the same things that I believed <laughs> more than a decade ago, though you're always a little embarrassed as a preacher to go, oh, that, I thought that was a good sermon which means that 10 years from now, people will look and think, you thought that was a good sermon? But I remember when I first undertook to preach on the book of Revelation, I remember telling my, my mom, she wasn't in the church, but just talking to her, and said I was going to preach through Revelation. And she said over the phone, Kevin, I hope you're not going to act like you have everything figured out. <laughs> and then she said one of the greatest mom things of all time. You do know that not even Calvin wrote a commentary on Revelation. <laughs> I said, I, I did know that, Mom, yes. Be careful what you tell your mother. It's a complicated book, and if we were to venture past chapters four and five, we would quickly get into uh, a number of different interpretations. And thankfully, we don't have to settle all of the or most of the interpretive disputes with Revelation, but it might be helpful before we jump into chapter one to give you some basic orientation to this book, which is often baffled, mystified, and intrigued Christians across the centuries. Let me be as so bold as to suggest that I think you can faithfully summarize the entire book of Revelation in one word. And you will not forget this word. And you already know this word, and some of you already have this word or a symbol of this word somewhere on your person. You look down at your feet, some of you, there's somebody in this room, I'm sure, and you have on your shoes a swish. Nike. Nike in the Greek. It's the Greek word for victory. Now, the noun form only shows up in 1 John 5, 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. But the verb form, nikao, meaning to conquer, to overcome, to triumph, occurs 28 times in the New Testament. And of those 28, 17 of those, so that's more than the rest of the New Testament combined, 17 of those occurrences are in the book of Revelation. Revelation is the story of the devil trying to conquer the church, but the church overcoming the devil 
and the world and our sin and temptation because the church belongs to the Lord who has won for us the victory. If you remember nothing else, and if you want to understand how to interpret Revelation, it starts with that word, Nike, victory. Revelation 5, 5, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, there's the word. Or Revelation 17, 14, they will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of Lord and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. They will overcome. So the book of Revelation gives instruction for how the believer is to conquer instead of being conquered. How we can triumph instead of being trampled. How to be an overcomer instead of a succumber. That's why, as you'll see in this weekend, each of the seven letters concludes with to him who, what's the word? Overcomes or triumphs. If we cave, if we give in to persecution, if we give in to worldliness, if we give in to the devil's temptation, we lose. But if we conquer through trial and suffering and sometimes seeming irrelevance, we win. And so the book ends in chapter 21. It is done, says he who sits on the throne. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. If you have your Bible open to Revelation and just a word to the wise, it's Revelation, not Revelations. Many pastors have heard parishioners ask about Revelations and we nod and smile and then later we say, it's just one, okay? Also, just while we're just, just being honest with each other, it's a book of Psalms, but if you refer to one, it's Psalm 23, not Psalms 23, though it is the 23rd book of the Psalms, just friendly grammar for each of us. If you look in the first three verses, I want you to notice that Revelation is three things. It is an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a letter. It begins in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So this is a book that is an apocalypse. In other words, a revelation. That's just the English translation of the Greek word. And we see it there in verse 1. The revelation is not of Jesus Christ in the sense that it is about him, though that's also true, but in the sense that it is from him. So there's a sequence of unveiling. God gave the revelation to Jesus Christ who made it known by sending his angel to John, whether the angel is a a spiritual being or is a pastor or a messenger or some earthly representation of the heavenly reality, now this angel is relaying it to God's servant, God to Jesus, to angel, to John, to the servant. When you see that word revelation or apocalyptic, it sounds intimidating. But all we need to understand is that an apocalypse, a revelation, is a book of showing. That's what makes it so intriguing and what has, over the centuries, made it so 
difficult. There are different genres in scripture. You know that, law and um, narrative and poetry. And this is its own type of literature, an apocalypse. It means that Revelation is not giving us precise legal codes. It is giving us verbal pictures. So it's not that we ever say, well, we don't take this, this book to be true. If you say, well, I don't take it in every place to be literal, some people hear literal and they mean, you don't think it's all true? No, we think it's all true, but it's giving to us verbal pictures. That's why it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants. He expects these visions then to be read and to be heard. So we have a text, but it's a text describing to us what was seen and revealed, an apocalypse. Then also notice verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it is an apocalypse and it is a prophecy. It's a prophecy rooted in Old Testament imagery. Revelation makes mention of or allusion to just, here's a partial list. The tree of life, the ancient serpent, the plagues, the song of Moses, Jezebel, Babylon, the temple, Jerusalem, the 12 tribes of Israel, priests, incense, Balaam, the water of life, the winepress of God's fury, and on and on and on. All of these are Old Testament images. Even though Revelation, we think of it as a book about the future, and aspects of it certainly are, more than any other book in the New Testament, it only makes sense when you look at it reading backward, that is, with the eyes of the Old Testament. You could make a list of all of the Old Testament references or allusions, and you would have some 500 of them. So in every chapter, sometimes in almost every verse, there is some allusion. It is a prophecy, both the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and imagery and a prophetic word about things, some of which happened in their lifetime and others which are unfolding or have yet to be realized. It's an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a letter. And I'm not you know, the first by any means to point out those three things. You can read Greg Beale's excellent commentary, and he makes these points which I have gleaned from him. It's a letter. Now, we know that if you think about the letters to the seven churches, but sometimes when it comes to interpreting Revelation, we forget that this was, first of all, a letter to a real churches, real Christians in real time and space. So before we think about what this might mean for us or how the symbolism might be interpreted, we have to remember it must have made sense to them. These were churches, some of them under attack, spiritually, physically, materially. Some of them were very deep into compromise and worldliness. And the message conveyed over and over is, don't give in, don't give up. Don't give in, don't give up. Jesus has won the victory so live like him, die like him, but do not succumb to the devil and the world. Revelation was probably a circular letter, meaning it was to be read at one church and from Ephesus and then to Smyrna and on to the seven churches in Asia Minor or what we now know as Turkey. And they would listen to it as the reader would read. So just keeping in mind these simple facts that it is a 
a book of verbal pictures, an apocalypse, a revelation, and it is a prophecy and it is a letter will help us to understand what we're reading and how to make sense of the symbolism, which is rich even in these first chapters. All of that is by way of introduction, and I realize that counts against my time. I know that. <laughs> the text signed for tonight is from Revelation 1, verse 9 through 20. Follow along as I read from the ESV, the elect standard version. <laughs> no, there's many others. I know. Okay. Verse 9. I... John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Many years ago, I read the book with the provocative title, Why Men Hate Going to Church. It's a very interesting book, though I think the author carries his argument too far, but the writer, David Murrow, gives a pop quiz. He says, which set of values best characterizes Jesus and his followers? And he gives two sets of answers. And on one side are 14 words and phrases. Competence, power, efficiency, achievement, skills, proving oneself, results, accomplishment, uh, uh, objects, technology, goal-oriented, self-sufficiency, success, competition. And then on the other side are a different set of 14 words or phrases. Love, communication, beauty, relationships, support, help, nurturing, feelings, sharing, relating, harmony, community, loving cooperation, personal expression. And he says, over the years I have shown this chart to hundreds of people men and women, Christians and non-Christians, and ask them the question, which set of lists best describes Jesus and his followers? And you just think to yourself, which list? If you had to just pick one or the other. Well, almost certainly most of us pick 
the second list. He says over the years, he's found 95% of the time people choose the right set, meaning the, the second one, as the best representation of true Christian values. That's the one with love, communication, beauty, relationships, help, nurturing, feelings, etc. And then he reveals, I got these two lists from chapter one of the best-selling book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. <laughs> and the first set of characteristics are those that in that book are considered typically masculine, and the second set are those that are considered typically feminine. And the point he wants to make in the book, and I think there is a point, but it's not the point of this sermon, and I think he overdoes it a bit, but the point he wants to make is that we have typically associated with Jesus and with Christianity what we might call a soft set of virtues. Now, the point, please hear me, is not to argue now for some hyper-macho Jesus, but rather that if we're honest, there are aspects of both of those lists that ought to describe the Christian life. The point is not... Jesus should be described with feminine or masculine language. He was a first century Jewish man. But to say our vision of Christ must not be one-dimensional. All soft or all hard. Do we see him in his humanity and divinity? Do we see him in his suffering and his glory? Do you have a Jesus who can both say, bring the little children unto me, and a Jesus who can drive out the money changers with a whip. Christians go off the rails when they decide only one of those Jesuses is true. And I'm going to make my model for the Christian life one or the other. Do you have a Jesus who has forgiveness and wrath? Do you experience sweet intimacy with Jesus and hail him as the all-conquering king of the universe? This Jesus in Revelation and the glimpse that we have of him through John's vision in chapter 1 is a Jesus that roars, claws, stands majestic, triumphant over the world which he has made. John describes him with the most exalted, glorious imagery. And so it's no wonder that John, in this moment of grandeur, the risen Christ before him and described only with, with symbols and visual representations of Old Testament images that his response is to fall on his face as though dead. You could describe the Christian life as learning to let go of the wrong fear and learning to embrace the right kind of fear because that's what we see. You fall at his face as though dead, and Jesus says, do not be afraid. That's the Christian life, how to fear and not be afraid. You know, if you saw the Oscars, I think in my life I've seen a total of zero Oscars. <laughs> but it's a big cultural moment, and I saw that the, uh, was it the winner for best documentary is this film called Free Solo, not about Star Wars, but it's about rock climbing. And it's about this, this man who is the first to climb free solo. That means no one belaying, no, no you know, clamps, no holds except your own body. 
to climb El Capitan. It was at 3,000 feet up, this, this sort of the, the pinnacle of rock climbing in California. And uh, I think National Geographic Channel is actually going to show it on Sunday. Uh, so go to church first. But <laughs> I was reading about it. I haven't seen it, but reading about it. And, it, of course, it's, it's an amazing athletic feat. And the people who are doing the documentary are, were just noting that they're making this, this film knowing that the film may end with the protagonist dying. Now, I haven't seen it, but it won an Oscar, so I'm assuming he makes it. <laughs> but in the film, they even wonder, is this man who's climbing this sheer face, free solo, is he some sort of sociopath that he doesn't have the proper level of fear? Just one shot of him panning out on this massive rock face will make you think, is he right in his head? So they did tests on the part of your brain that experiences fear. And they said, no, the MRI shows it, it looks just like it, a normal brain, but they give all sorts of fear stimuli, and sure enough, he res responds almost not at all to normal fear stimuli. So I say, are you some sort of sociopath that you can do this? And he explains that I've been doing this for so long, so many times in my life, that I have an expansive comfort zone with things that people are normally afraid of. And I began, and I thought, is it possible for some of us that yes, there's a good thing to have intimacy with Christ. It's a good thing. We, want, we certainly want to have sweet communion with him. But can it happen that there is such a familiarity, such a comfort level, so many times we've gone to church, so many times we've read our Bible, there is no longer anything firing up here that says this is not a God to be trifled with. What we see in this vision, and it is a theme throughout the entire book, is that to see Jesus Christ is to fear, and in the very next breath, not to be afraid. And until we can understand that paradox, we cannot understand this book or what it means to be a Christian. Here we see Jesus standing among the churches. A voice comes, and then he turns around, and he sees him in the midst of the lampstand. So there is Jesus, symbolically, in the midst of these churches. Keep that in mind, because most of the churches are failing in significant ways, but Jesus is still there with his presence, calling them back to faithfulness. And as he stands here, he is clearly acting the part of the high priest. The long robe, the golden sash, verse 13. Those are priestly garments from Exodus 28 and 29. The priests, you may recall, were responsible for trimming the wicks, filling the oil of the seven candles in the tabernacle. The priests tended to the menorah day in and day, night, day after night. And so now Jesus is doing the work of the high priest, tending to the menorah, as it were, the seven golden lampstands, seeing that their wicks are trimmed, seeing that their light is not extinguished, calling them to faithfulness and repentance that they might not be snuffed out. He's our great high priest performing priestly duties on our behalf. And then you notice verse 13 also says, he is one like a son of man. We often hear that language, which is perhaps Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels, and we think, yes, that's right. He was son of God, son of man. 
He was fully divine. He was fully human. But actually, Son of Man is not an ascription of his humanity. It is much more an ascription of his deity. Because Son of Man language comes directly from Daniel chapter 7. In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's an absolutely key text in Daniel and in the Old Testament at large. Because you have the Ancient of Days, who is clearly described as a theophany, as a God appearing. This is God. And yet there is one who has the prerogatives of God. He receives worship. He's given an everlasting kingdom. And yet, in some sense, is not this Ancient of Days, but yet is a second divine figure. Not full-blown Trinitarian theology, but sketchings of what later would be developed in the New Testament and the early church. The Son of Man is this one who approaches the Ancient of Days to receive an inheritance, a people, a kingdom. Two exalted divine figures in Daniel's vision. So when he is described here in Revelation as one like a Son of Man, it is a reference not to his humanity, though we affirm that certainly, but to his exalted deity. This is none other than God himself. In fact, every element of the description of Jesus comes from some description of God or the Messiah in the Old Testament. The Son of Man is from Daniel 7. We've seen that. The robe and the sash are from Exodus 28. The white hair is also from Daniel 7. Oh, white hair. What a blessing. The eyes, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze, shining faces. They're from Daniel 10. The voice like many waters is from Ezekiel 43, where the glory returns to the temple. And the sharp sword, symbolizing the word of God, striking down his enemies, comes from Isaiah 49. So note carefully when someone says you don't take revelation literally well you're right no i don't think that jesus walks around with a sword out of his mouth and his feet on fire and then he has to have white hair no this is not a literal picture of what jesus looks like it is a literal picture of what jesus is like not what he looks like what he is like all of this is to describe the glory and the grandeur of Christ fulfilling all of these Old Testament images. He is robed in majesty. He is clothed with priestly authority. He is strong like rushing waters, pure like burnished bronze. His convincing gaze pierces. His words cut like a sword. His face shines in brilliant holiness, dazzling beauty like the sun. That's true. And so is it any wonder that John, having a glimpse of this exalted Christ, did not rush to hug him or shake his hand or say, Jesus is my homeboy. He fell at his feet as though dead. And if you know your Bibles, you know this is not the only place that this happens. Daniel chapter 10 
On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like burnished bronze, his voice like the sound of a multitude. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Or, more familiar, Matthew 17, where Peter, James, and John are on the mountain and they see Jesus transfigured before him. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light, and there appeared before Moses and Elisha. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped him, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Could it be that we are too familiar with Jesus? Let me make it more personal. Could it be that I am too familiar with Jesus? What a privilege, those of us who are pastors, and I know most of you aren't, but what a privilege we have to, to handle holy things week after week and to preach of such grand and glorious things. And our great privilege is also our great danger that it would all become so ordinary, so commonplace, so casual. I want you to read a paragraph from a book that came out more than a decade ago. Maybe some of you read it. If some of you liked it, don't, don't admit that quite yet. Uh, but it's a best-selling book, Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz. If you haven't, that's fine. But here's the climax of the book where he gives reasons for embracing Jesus. And, and give the benefit of the doubt that he's trying to write a book for skeptics and seekers and people hurt and wanting good things. But see if this can square with the vision of Christ we've just seen. He says, all great characters and stories are the ones who give their lives to something bigger than themselves. And in all the stories, I don't find anyone more noble than Jesus. It's true. He gave his life for me in obedience to his Father. I truly love him for that. I think the difference in my life came when I realized after reading these Gospels that Jesus didn't just love me out of principle. He didn't just love me because it was the right thing to do. Here's the line. Rather, there was something inside me that caused him to love me. <laughs> Isaiah 53 would have something different to say. We were not, brothers and sisters, diamonds in the rough. We were just rough. <laughs> and he set his affection upon us. And in his electing love, he freely of his sovereign grace chose to love us. That last sentence is wrong. This next part is insufficient. He says, I think I realized that if I walked up to Jesus' campfire, he would ask me to sit down and he would ask me my story. He would take time to listen to my ramblings or my anger until I could calm down and then he would look me directly in the eye and he would speak to me. He would tell me the truth and I would sense in his voice and in the lines of his face that he liked me. He would rebuke me too and I would tell him that I have prejudices against very religious people and I need to deal with that. He would tell me that there are poor people in the world and I need to feed them and that somehow this will make me more happy. 
I think he would tell me what my gifts are and why I have them, and he would give me ideas on how to use them. I think he would explain to me why my father left, and he would point out very clearly all the ways God has taken care of me, all the stuff God protected me from. No doubt there are many true statements in that paragraph. Jesus does like us, in a way, yes. He does, he does. He does speak the truth. He does care about our hurts. He is patient with our ramblings. And I want to be fair that it's probably not all that the author wants to say about Jesus in that one particular paragraph. But if we are left with just a paragraph like that, Jesus is little more than a therapist. It's woefully insufficient. Jesus becomes for so many of us a mere coping mechanism. We want this fellowship with a kind, caring Jesus But if he is to really help us, he must be more than just a sensitive, good listener. Must be more than one who can just help us make sense of our stories. Is that the Jesus of the Bible? Is that all we have? Or do we have one who is strong and exalted and mighty, and it is chiefly because he is so strong and exalted and mighty that when he says, do not be afraid, we're comforted. Compare that vision that I just read with this vision from another author centuries earlier. Jonathan Edwards says, once in 1737, I had a view that was for me extraordinary, the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears, weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, but emptied and annihilated, to be in the dust, to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity." Brothers and sisters, a mere therapist Christ does not evoke an ardency of soul that wishes to be emptied of self and annihilated and filled with only Christ in a divine and heavenly purity. And only when we see Christ as one like a son of man, eyes of flame, feet of fire, mouth as a sword, voice like many waters, face like the sun, only then, only then will we be able to overcome and say with the Apostle John, I'm a companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Yes, we have many hurts, many pains, many confusing twists and turns in our stories We want comfort. We're right to want comfort. We are right to look to Jesus for comfort. We want him to care, to listen. But do not shrink him. Do not make him just like us. If he is mighty to save, he must be strong and radiant and glorious. For that is our comfort. 
It's the glory of Jesus that makes the way for the grace of Jesus. It's John's vision of a glorified Christ that makes the words of Christ so reassuring. If a mere good listener, a friend, and we're thankful for all of those, but if your sweet friend simply said, it'll be okay, don't be afraid, you might thank them, say, oh, I appreciate that, give me a big hug, or if you're Dutch, just a little, how do you do? <laughs> but how much more comforting if the one who says that is the one before whom we tremble, the one who holds the universe in his hand, the one who created all things, the one who calls out the stars by name, the one who has the voice of rushing waters, that one before whom we have every reason to tremble, we have every reason to be afraid, we have every reason to flee, and that one puts his heavy hand upon our shoulder and says, stand up. Do not be afraid. John relates to us and all who have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want to finish by looking at the ascription in verses 17 and 18 and find these words of comfort. Notice what Jesus says. First, he says, fear not. It's worth mentioning that in both the Daniel 10 passage, which I read, and the Matthew 17 transfiguration passage, the Lord says the same thing. Daniel 10, 12, do not be afraid, Daniel. Matthew 17, 7, Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, do not be afraid. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not because God is terrifying to us, but because God is terrifying and he is for us. He's strong and mighty and glorious, and he's on our side. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. Don't be afraid of the ones who hate you, the ones who misinterpret you, the ones who malign you, the ones who reject you, the ones who can sue you, the ones who can fire you, the ones who can hurt you. Don't be afraid. The world, the devil, those who can bring harm upon you, do not fear, for I am with you. And I'm not just a good listener. I'm the creator. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Do not be afraid. And then he says, I am the first and the last. That is, he sees all things. He knows all things because he is before all things. He directs all things. Nothing catches him by surprise. He says, I am the living one. See, here's one of the lies of the devil. The devil wants you to believe that God will make your life miserable. He has all of his laws, all of his commands, his demands of worship and allegiance. But the devil is the destroyer. Jesus is the living one. He means to give you life even in the midst of suffering. If you will trust him, if you will do things God's way, remember that when the Ten Commandments came, God's people had already been delivered out of Egypt, 
I know we think of law leads to gospel in the sense that the law convicts us of sin and then the gospel gives us the good news that we can be saved in Christ. But from a redemptive historical perspective, it's also true to say gospel leads to law because God did not hear the cry of his people in Egypt and say, I see your suffering, you need a savior, I have 10 commandments, try these out for a year and then I'll come back with some plagues. (laughs) No, he saved them sovereignly, unilaterally, Grace, gospel, then law. Because remember, when, when Moses says, let my people go, it's not the end of it. It's let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. It was always a freedom for the purpose of worship. And so God gives the law to his people, not as the mechanism for earning any salvation, but to a free people that they might stay free. The devil always tells us, no, you can't trust this God. No, no, God's keeping you from something, Adam and Eve. That's why he doesn't want you. He knows what's going to happen. You're going to be as smart as God if you eat from that tree. No, Jesus is the living one. He's not the destroyer. There's life, fullness of life in him. He reassures us, I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Do you believe Easter is true? That Jesus was stone cold dead and he ain't anymore. And why do we doubt his promises? What is too difficult for a God who raises the dead? He raised the dead. He can't raise your dead marriage. Why are we caving into the culture, acting just like the world? Why do we worry so? Why are we so full of bitterness to those who have hurt us? Why are we living as if there were no hope when we follow a Savior who died and is alive? And finally, he says, I hold the keys of death and Hades, which may mean I'm sovereign over your suffering, even over your death. That's certainly true. But I think more than that, it means death will not hold you because I have the keys to unlock death's door. You shall live even after you die. So let us never forget, a flat line is not the end of the story for those who follow Jesus. And though we weep and though we grieve, we know for those who die in the Lord that in that next moment they have never been more alive. So here is one of the main themes we will see in these letters and in the book of Revelation. Do not let your main goal in life be merely to live because there is so much more after you die. You will go on living. Make your goal then not just to live, but to be an overcomer. Victory, Nike, like Jesus, who was kind and compassionate and good, and through suffering and death, victorious. So that he is always good, and as we've all heard before, he is not a tame lion. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word, for all that was revealed to your servant John, and through him, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to us and your inerrant word, help us in these days. What a privilege we have to feast upon these things. Surely I am not equal to the task of speaking about such grand and glorious things. So 
May you, over these messages by your Spirit, preach to us a better sermon than the ones that we will be preaching, that we might know this Christ, we might worship this Christ, we might live and die and reign forever with this Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.